God, would you have mercy on us this morning? Would you help us to hear your word this morning? If there's stuff in us, God, that's stopping us from hearing from you or distracting us, God, would you just kind of clear that out inside of us? Father, would you send the Holy Spirit? And I know we already have the Holy Spirit, Father, but would you allow the Holy Spirit to do a work in us this morning where we are refreshed, where we know you more, that we feel more connected to you? God, would you fill me with your spirit this morning that the words I would speak be what you want to say to this room? And God, for those that are uh, doubting or unbelieving or wrestling right now, God, I ask that uh, your words today are a comfort, that your words today are an invitation rather than um, words that push, that, that almost make us feel like being pushed away. So God, you're good, you're loving, you're kind, you're merciful. I ask for all of those things in abundance this morning as uh, we get in the word together. Thank you, God. Amen. Amen. All right, good morning, everybody. Um, Like John said, I'm Anthony. I'm the pastor up in Flagstaff, or otherwise you know me as the pastor you sometimes see when you camp up near Flagstaff and stop in and visit. And so, uh, hey, I love Redemption Peoria. I love you guys for two reasons. One uh, is I think you guys are physically the closest redemption to Redemption Flagstaff, okay? So there, there is a brotherhood, there is a sisterhood between, we are in the thick of it together, okay? And so uh, I, I love you guys for that reason. Uh, the second reason is this, I actually grew up going to a church not too far from here, and if there was a church like Redemption Peoria in my life, I would have been immensely blessed. And so I'm thankful for your guys' witness to Jesus, your embodiment of his body here in this area of town, which a, a little uh, young Anthony needed when I was a kid. And so I'm thankful for you guys. Um, hey, John, John is a great pastor. You guys have a really great pastor. I don't know if you guys know that. I know you guys know that, but John is a really good pastor. I've, so I've sat in class with him for four years, and I've listened to him, and often the things that John wants to do, often the things John is already implementing as a pastor, they're the kinds of things that I say to myself, every pastor in America needs to be more like John. And so you guys are really lucky uh, to have John. Now, I know John told that uh, like heartwarming story about me earlier, but now I'm going to tell a story that's not as heartwarming. Um, I need to come clean to you guys about something. Um, So we've been in seminary class for four years together. We've been in this little cohort that meets in a house together for four years. And I've been inadvertently pranking John, okay? I I wasn't trying to prank him, but I've accidentally pranked him for about four years now. And so in the bathroom at this uh, house, there's a little Jesus statue, okay? And I just move it every time I go in there. I put it, I just purposely put it somewhere it doesn't belong. I don't know why. I just, something's wrong with me. And so I've been moving it. And for about four years now, our main professor, Mike Goheen, he's been blaming John for this. (laughs) And he's been confronting John over and over again. Like, why are you moving this statue while I just sit like, yes. Get him, <laughs> right? Denying it, straight face, not letting anyone know that I was doing it. And so I have to complain about that. John, I'm sorry. I, I've been the one moving the statue. It's been me. But if you tell Gohin, I'll deny it. <laughs> I will deny it just like I have for four years, okay? Snitches get stitches, all right? So 
I will continue to deny it. So now, uh, now that I've come clean and admit that to you guys, I can now, uh, in a pure heart, bring the word to you guys this morning. So, hey, we are in the Gospel of John uh, this morning. I love this book. I love the Gospel of John. It is one of my favorite uh, books of the Bible, if you're allowed to have favorite books of the Bible. And we've, over the last few weeks, we've, we've gotten to just watch how, how Jesus' resurrection unfolds, right? First, the tomb is empty, and the women go, and Mary Magdalene, in particular, we see, are, is there and sees the empty tomb. She goes, and she gets Peter and John, and John run back, and the tomb is empty. They see the, the burial cloths all folded up and nice, and, and they run back, and they're wondering what's going on. And then Mary, she sees Jesus in the flesh. She sees the resurrected Jesus, and he sends her to go tell everybody. So she goes and she tells everybody, hey, Jesus has risen from the dead. He's alive. And then Jesus teleports into a room they're all hanging out in that has locked doors and he reveals himself to them. And what we saw last week is not only does he reveal himself to them, but he sends them out into the world just as his father had sent him. And so that's where we're at in the story. And today we're going to get to this story uh, about the disciple Thomas, the disciple Thomas, who apparently wasn't in the room with them when Jesus first appeared to a bunch of them. You guys probably know Thomas, the, the kind of the, the cliche name for Thomas is Doubting Thomas, right? Uh, this, some people kind of go, that's not the best name for Thomas. We shouldn't call him Doubting Thomas, but we are going to use that kind of word doubt today. We're going to kind of hold on to it, and we're going to let it be kind of a catch-all for what we're talking about today. We're going to let it be a catch-all for anytime someone needs more proof, anytime someone needs more evidence, or even anytime someone's doubting. And so we are going to talk about what Thomas goes through in this passage with this word doubt, but also this word unbelief. And so here's what we're going to do today. We're going to go through this passage together where we see Thomas and his doubt or unbelief. And, and we'll kind of just explain it as we go. And then after we go through the passage together, we're going to, we're, we're going to talk about three things. We're going to talk about kind of three interactions that the main players in this text have with doubt. And so we're going to look at how Jesus approaches doubt then we're going to look at how the church or the disciples approach doubt. And then we're going to even look at what, how the doubter is invited into belief. We're going to look at what the doubter does with their doubt or what Jesus wants the doubter to do with their doubt. So those are the three things that we are going to do this morning. So we are in John chapter 20. John just read it to us. We're going to start in verse 24. I, I like to kind of break it up and just read a couple verses at a time. And so let's go through this passage together. Verse 24 says this. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Let's, let's stop there. Can you imagine being only one of the, the, the only one of the 11 that didn't see the risen Jesus? Like, that would be so disappointing, <laughs> right? Like, I could just imagine coming back and just being, all right, guys, I got the fish and the loaves, and they're like, hey, we just saw Jesus. Uh, like, I missed him. Like, but Thomas, he kind of has a different reaction than maybe what some of us would have. Thomas comes back, and they're trying to tell him, hey, we saw Jesus. We saw the risen Jesus. We even saw the marks in his hands. We saw his side. And Thomas is just kind of going, yeah, sure. Sure he did. 
right? Sure you did. And they go, no, Thomas, we saw him. And he's just, he's just kind of like, listen, I, I, we're all in shock here. I get it. We, we're all thinking we're seeing things that we didn't really see. And, and no, Thomas, we saw him. Listen, I will believe. I'll believe you saw him when I see him myself. And I see these marks you're talking about and this, the spear wound in his side. And I put my own hand in those things. Then, then I'll believe in Jesus. Thomas, I actually like Thomas. He's really grounded. He's pragmatic. And, and these different glimpses we get of Thomas in the Gospel of John is a, of a pragmatic, practical Thomas, right? Okay, if you, there are just two quick details in the Gospel of John about Thomas. The first one is in John 11. This is where Jesus raises Lazarus. And so they send word to Jesus saying, hey, you got to come pray for Lazarus before he dies. And Jesus says, hey, I'll get there soon. And so the disciples find out that Jesus is going to go back to where Lazarus was, Bethany, and, and, and pray for Lazarus, raise Lazarus from the dead. And the disciples are freaking out because they're going, Jesus, we were just in that area and people tried to kill you. They picked up rocks to throw them at you till you died. Like, they're, you're going to die if we go back. And so Jesus, in response to that, goes, listen, listen, we're going back so you guys would believe more deeply. And Thomas, he gives either an impassioned or dejected statement here. We don't know. He either gives an impassioned, let's follow Jesus statement, or a dejected statement. When Jesus says, hey, we're going, even though people try to kill me, Thomas goes, let's just go with him like, and die with him. <laughs> He's like, let's just go with him and we're going to die with him, right? He's very practical. He knows if you go to a place where people try to kill you, they're probably going to kill you the second time you get there, right? Like he's just, and maybe he's passionately saying, let's follow Jesus here. Or maybe he's just pragmatic going, listen, this is what we chose three years ago to do. We've been following this guy around. This was bound to happen. And so we got, he's just kind of a pragmatic guy. Another story where Thomas is very practical is John chapter 14. Jesus, in John chapter 14, he's preparing the disciples for when he will be away. And, he, and he's kind of telling them all these things. And he goes, hey, I'm going to my father's house. At my father's house, I'm going to prepare a room for you. And you guys are going to come to my father's house because you know the way to my father's house. To which Thomas, the only one brave enough to say this, goes, um, no, we don't. We don't know. Where is your father's house? I can even imagine Thomas like, I've been trying to pin this down for a few years now based on the clues. Jesus, where is your father's house? We need to know the way. I'm, I want to go there. My own room sounds great, but where? How do we get there? And we're, in which Jesus says, hey, I'm the way there. And so this, this picture we get of Thomas throughout the Gospel of John is he's pragmatic. He's practical. He, he, he need, he's earthy in that sense. And so I bet there's a, there's a lot of you in this room that can relate to Thomas. I bet there's a lot of you in, you, in, of you in here that go, I'm practical, I'm pragmatic. Sometimes my pragmatism annoys people. And so maybe today you have to listen up and see what happens with Thomas because maybe the Lord's trying to speak to you too. Okay, so let's keep going in the passage. Verse 26. So this, eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, and put out your hand, and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. 
Thomas answered him, my Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Okay, so Jesus teleports into the room again, which, guys, I promise you, I'm going to ask Jesus for teleportation powers based on this passage in the resurrection. I'm going to say, hey, you were teleporting. So Jesus teleports into the room. He says this is his famous greeting now, peace be with you. And this is really Jesus saying, I fulfilled the promise of peace through the cross and the resurrection. And then instantly what Jesus does is he goes right over to Thomas. At least that's how I'm reading it. It's almost like he comes into the room to approach Thomas. And right away he says, Thomas, come here. Touch my hands. Put your hand in my side. Give me your hand. Put your hand in my side. Look, this, this is true. I have died and have come back to life. And then Thomas exclaims in one of the most beautiful exclamations in all of Scripture. He says, my Lord and my God. Thomas wasn't lying. If he got to touch the hands and touch the side, he would believe. And here he is believing. And then Jesus says this thing. Hey, don't disbelieve, Thomas, but believe. And Jesus says this kind of sort of a beatitude. If you know from Matthew 5 where Jesus says, hey, blessed are these people. Jesus says another one where he kind of goes, hey, blessed are those that can believe in me without seeing me. And so here's what we're going to do with the rest of this message. What I want to do with the rest of this message. I want to look at everybody in this story. And I want to look at how they interact with doubt or how they're encouraged to interact with doubt. And so again, we're going to look at how Jesus approaches doubt. We're going to see how the disciples interact with Thomas's doubt. And then we're going to see how the doubter himself, Thomas, is, and what he's actually, what the doubter himself, Thomas, is invited into by Jesus. And so we'll look at the doubter in doubt. So first, let's look at Jesus in doubt. How does Jesus interact with Thomas's unbelief, his doubt in this story? Uh, one thing I, I love here, and I, I've already touched on it, it, it feels like to me that, that Jesus just shows up in this room to show up to Thomas. It seems like that is Jesus's main goal in this instance, is to show up for Thomas. Jesus knows what Thomas is wanting. Jesus remembers Thomas. Jesus knows pragmatic Thomas. And he shows up in the room just to approach Thomas. He pops in and he begins to help Thomas with his doubts. Jesus isn't freaked out by Thomas's doubts. Jesus isn't even angered by Thomas's doubts. He's just gently approaching Thomas and allowing practical, pragmatic Thomas to feel his hands and his side. Jesus wants to help Thomas trust in the resurrection. Another thing, Jesus doesn't despise Thomas's doubts. Do you see that? Jesus doesn't despise Thomas's doubts. He almost literally embraces Thomas's doubts. Here's what that shows us about Jesus and how he interacts with doubt. Jesus is not freaked out by our doubts. He's not even mad at us for our doubts. Jesus is not freaked out by our unbelief. Sure, he wants us to believe, but he's not freaked out or angered by it, and he doesn't despise us for it. Jesus will embrace us in our doubts, not push us away. 
That's who Jesus is. I think there's another thing we could easily miss about Jesus and how he approaches doubt and interacts with doubt in this story is I think that perhaps what Thomas is seeing here is Jesus the teacher, Jesus the shepherd. I think very often how Jesus interacts with us, how Jesus interacts with his disciples is by teaching, by shepherding. And I think he's trying to shepherd Thomas into something else. I think he's trying to teach Thomas something else. Because if you saw that little detail, Thomas had to wait eight days before seeing proof of the resurrection. Why? I'm sure Jesus could have just popped to where Thomas was. I'm sure Jesus could have found him. I'm sure Jesus could have done all sorts of things. But Thomas has to wait eight days before he gets proof of the resurrection, proof of the resurrected Jesus. I think Jesus is teaching Thomas something. I think he's teaching him that doubts don't always get resolved quickly. And I think that Jesus was trying to prepare Thomas and us with Thomas for what life will be like when Jesus ascends and goes to be with his father. He's trying to show Thomas, listen, I know you're pragmatic. I know you're practical. I know you need to see things to believe, but I'm going to be away. And sometimes you're going to have doubts, and those doubts aren't going to get resolved quickly always. And, and a lot of us need to hear that in this room right now. You and I, we're, we're McDonald's people, right? Or Maybe you're like, McDonald's is disgusting. What's your fast food place? I'll figure it out. You got a fast food place. We're, we are fast food people. We want our discomfort to be comforted quickly. And so when we have a doubt that makes us uncomfortable, we want it resolved as fast as possible. But Thomas had to wait eight days. And I think that Jesus was shepherding his heart and ours with his heart into realizing what life in the spirit is like sometimes. Our doubts don't always just get resolved quickly. And so there's, a, there's all sorts of ways that Jesus interacts with doubt in this story. And, I, and my, my hope of just looking at that is just look at Jesus. Look how good he is. Look at the sort of shepherd he is. Look at the sort of teacher he is. He's not freaked out by doubts. He, in fact, he embraces doubts. And Jesus even seems to be shepherding and teaching Thomas and us with Thomas how to wait in the pain of unresolved doubt. Okay, so that's... Jesus and doubt. Now, what about the church or the disciples in the scene, right? The disciples in the scene, they are the church at this point. They are the body of Christ at this point. What, do, what are we to see about the church and doubt here? How do, the, how do the people of God here interact with someone that is having doubt? I, imagine being in their shoes and they see Jesus and Thomas comes back and they go, Thomas, we saw Jesus. And he's just like, no, you didn't. Guys, I get it. Again, we're all in shock here. You didn't see. No, Thomas, we saw him. No, guys, no, you, you didn't. Are you calling us crazy? No, I'm not calling you crazy. I just don't think. I, I believe you believe you saw him. Right? And he's probably being kind, but he's just going, I don't believe you guys. That, now, if that happened to us, when we just experienced what is literally the craziest thing in all of human history, we would be pretty annoyed. And my guess is they were pretty annoyed. Like, Thomas, we've spent three years with you. We've seen Jesus do all kinds of stuff. We're not going to lie to you here on the tail end about this. We're still locking the doors, Thomas. We're still freaked out. And, 
it would be, it would be so invalidating to have a Thomas in your midst after seeing the risen Jesus. And it would be easier to just go, forget Thomas, he's just not getting it. But what does the community of God, what, do the, what does the church, what do the disciples do with Thomas? They keep him around. Do you notice that? They keep him around and almost as if they are sitting in the exact same situation they just were eight days earlier when Jesus appeared. They're sitting there now with Thomas. The, the community of God, the church, instead of pushing Thomas out for his doubt and his unbelief, and, and even probably his invalidation of what they were telling him, they wrap around him. They bring him in. In fact, I bet they bring him into their midst in hopes that Jesus would show up again for Thomas. I think what the disciples here do and what they do with Thomas and his unbelief helps us know what we are called to do, us who believe in the resurrection, what we are called to do when we interact with others and their unbelief. We don't cast people out for their unbelief. We don't cast people out for their doubt. We don't say, well, hey, when your belief lines up with mine perfectly, you're back in the room with us. That's not what the early church did. That's not what the disciples did. That's not what we should do. When someone is around us and they have unbelief or doubt, and even if it freaks us out, we keep them around. We invite them in. We expectantly and prayerfully ask that Jesus would show up in their lives. Listen, as the community of God, as the church, we are going to, for the rest of our lives, as we do this thing called church together, for the rest of our lives, there are going to be people in our midst who have doubts, who have unbelief, who even in their unbelief say invalidating things to us who even in their unbelief say things that freak us out and even maybe cause us to begin to uh, wrestle with our own belief and our own doubts. And we have a choice to make when those people are in our midst. We can kind of leave them alone, let them be, maybe even by our silence, encourage them out the door, or we could invite them in. Or we can make our churches places where the doubter feels at home. It seems like that's what the early church did. They welcomed Thomas and his doubt and brought him in. Are we that sort of church redemption? Additionally, as the community of God, we are also, we are going to be a people that want the resurrected Jesus to show up in people's lives, Right? So what that means is we're going to need to be in people's lives. We're going to need to realize that there's all sorts of people out there in the world with all sorts of doubts and all sorts of unbelief, and they're going to be kind of going, hey, prove to me that Jesus is real, and we have to realize that we are supposed to be in their lives to help them with their doubt, to care for them, to make them feel welcome. Everybody out there, guys, is going, I don't think you have enough proof. I, th I think you believe that Jesus raised from the dead. I believe you believe that, but I don't, and I, I don't have enough proof yet. And I think too often for us as Christians, as we encounter people like that, we just kind of go, well, that person's 
I'm out. I'm not, that person's not interested. And maybe there's some level of wisdom in that, but what if our churches became a place where that person felt the most loved and welcomed? What if our churches became a place full of doubters and atheists and skeptics simply because the church became the place where those groups of people felt the most loved and cared for? I think we would begin to see Jesus showing up in their lives as well. Church, if people's doubts freak you out, meet with the pastor, talk through that, but they don't, people's doubts don't have to freak you out because we have the resurrection. We've seen the resurrected Jesus. We don't have to let their doubts freak us out. And I think sometimes they freak us out so much because we go, well, I can't change their doubts. I can't do it. Well, guess what? Jesus is the good shepherd and the sovereign Lord that you are not. And so we just show up into their lives. We'd be sent into their lives, loving them, caring for them, proclaiming Jesus all the ways we can and listening to what the spirit wants to do in the midst of that. May our churches make room for the doubters. Okay, finally, I want to look at the doubter and doubt. How is Jesus inviting the doubter into belief? When I read this passage, I, I'll be honest how I read it. I read this passage and I kind of go, okay, so here's Thomas. Jesus is very loving to Thomas. And then he says this thing to Thomas, Thomas like, hey, do, don't disbelieve. In the Greek, it's even kind of like, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And then Jesus says this beatitude, like, hey, blessed are those that believe in me without seeing. And I, I, if I'm honest, I kind of read it on first glance. I read through that passage, and I kind of go, well, I guess some people are blessed, and some people are not. Some people are blessed with believing easily without seeing, and some people are not. And it just, it is what it is. And I kind of almost get discouraged, and I almost kind of go, God, why is that? But I don't think that's what's going on here. I think I'm reading the passage wrong. I don't think Jesus is just saying, hey, it is what it is. But I think he's actually inviting Thomas, the doubter, into something else. He's inviting, he's inviting him into belief, right? He says, don't disbelieve, but believe. I don't think Jesus is saying, hey, Thomas, think, stop thinking wrong, start thinking right. I don't think Jesus is saying that. I think he's inviting Thomas into something deeper. Here's why. In the Greek, that word belief, that word belief in the Greek, it, it just, it's a more robust word than it is in English. In English. It's a good translation of that word, but in English, belief is kind of like assenting or ascending to mental ideas or agreeing with certain ideas, right? That's kind of what we think of a belief. And that, that connotation is there in the Greek as well. But in the Greek, this, this word is robust, and it doesn't just mean agreeing with certain ideas. It has this strong connotation of trust. And not just trust, but of entrusting yourself to. And so as we've seen throughout the Gospel of John, belief is a huge theme in the Gospel of John. In fact, we see that this is why the book is written in the Gospel of John. It is to invite people into believing in Jesus. Look at verses 30 and 31 with me. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. And so this word, this word that is much more robust in the Greek than it is in the English, this word is an invitation, 
It's not just a word saying, hey, think right, don't think wrong. It's a word where Jesus is saying, trust me instead of distrust me. It's almost like Jesus is reaching out his hand and he's saying, take my hand. Instead of keep walking in this unbelief, take my hand. Trust me. But you know the, the, the famous scene in the movie Aladdin? We've all seen it, right? Aladdin turns to Jasmine, and he's like, we got to jump over this thing. And then she's like, no. And he's like, do you trust me? And she shouldn't. She hasn't known him long enough. Right? And he reaches out his hand. He says, do you trust me? And he says it a couple times. And eventually she grabs it, and they fall in a pile of sand, and they're okay. I think sometimes walking with Jesus, and I think for some of us doubters in the rooms, it's sometimes that's kind of what it's like to follow Jesus. I think Jesus is reaching out and he's going, do you trust me? Choose to trust me. Take hold of my hand instead of not. Trust me. And so for us doubters in the room, what Jesus is inviting us into is not just to think rightly. He's really, I think, inviting us into trusting him more. What would it look like for us to trust him more? Not just make sure our thinking is all right, but what would it look like for us to relate to Jesus in a way that causes us to be practicing trust, to entrust ourselves to him and what he says. And what the gospel of John shows here for us doubters in the room is that we can trust Jesus without seeing him. Jesus isn't saying it is what it is. Good luck, those that are blessed and believe in me without seeing. I think what this book is trying to say is you can believe, you can trust in Jesus just from these words. Because of this beautiful thing that Jesus has done in history. Jesus is reaching out his hand and he's asking all of us, hey, will you take it? Do you trust me? And when we take Jesus' hand, I think we find very often that faith, it's more like falling in love than figuring everything out. It's more like falling in love than figuring everything out. And us doubters in the room, and I say us because I have all kinds of doubts. My doubts will keep you up at night. Us doubters in the room need to realize that Jesus is inviting us to entrust ourselves to him. That's what he's inviting us into. There's something else really quickly, doubters, that I, that I want us to hear because I really think Jesus is inviting the doubters into something. And it's this. I think that God's blessing is always up for grabs in one sense, okay? Now, give me grace in how I'm phrasing that. But I think in one sense, God's blessing is always up for grabs. Here's what I mean. There's another story that I think would encourage us doubters about another twin. And it's debated if Thomas was really a twin or not, but give me grace. There's this story about Jacob, who's a twin. And he encounters God through this angel of the Lord, which is just like some guy walking around, apparently. And so Jacob's natural reaction, who, who knows this, this guy represents God or is God or whatever, he's, he's kind of like, well, I'm going to wrestle him now. And they start wrestling, and Jacob just grabs on, and he's wrestling with God, and they're rolling around, and the angel's even like, dude, what are you, like, let go. Like, why are you doing this? And Jacob's like, I'm not going to let go until I get the Lord's blessing. I'm not going to let go until God blesses me. And so they keep wrestling, and eventually the angel of the Lord pops his hip out, rolls him over, and says, fine, like, you're blessed. And I think when Jesus is talking about blessing here, I don't think he's saying, hey, some are blessed, some are not. I think he's trying to say, hey, my blessing is always up for grabs. 
My blessing is here for the taking. If you read how he uses this word belief throughout the Gospel of John, he's not just saying it is what it is. He's saying, I want you to believe. I'm trying to get you to believe. And so for some of us doubters in the room, here's what I want us to say, is that maybe we need to try to latch on to God any way we know how. And not let go until we receive his blessing. Now listen, be careful with that. I don't think we can force God's hand. I don't think if you do certain things, then God's going to do what you want him to do. But I just wonder for us doubters in the room, I wonder if instead of running away from God or turning from God or interrogating God, that we would turn to God and grab hold and latch on with that same sort of heart that Jacob had saying, I know you have the blessing. I know you have what I want. I'm not going to let go until you give it to me. I wonder for us who doubt, for us who are pragmatic, I wonder if that's what we should step into instead of turning from God, instead of interrogating God at times. God's totally fine and comfortable with your interrogation. But I, I wonder if there's something more beautiful for us still. And so for those in the room that doubt, that struggle, that really kind of relate to Thomas in this scene, I want you to hear what Jesus is saying today is not, hey, figure it out and then come to me. Hey, figure it out without seeing me. I think what Jesus is saying is, I've made it possible so you can trust me without seeing me. I'm inviting you into belief. I'm inviting you into trust. I'm inviting you into blessing. My blessing's up for grabs. I think that's what Jesus is saying. And so some of us need to hear that. Jesus wants to give you his blessing of himself. He wants to give you the blessing of the resurrection and the resurrected life. That's why he went to the cross in joy. He wants to give us those things. That's how much the Lord loves us. And so how, how Jesus deals with doubt, it, it's beautiful to me. How the disciples dealt with doubt, it should actually equip us as the church to be a better church. And then doubters in the room, I would encourage you to reach out and take Jesus' hand instead of push it away. And begin to trust him in new and different ways. And so may we be a church, may we be a church that sees doubt and sees unbelief as a beautiful opportunity for Jesus to show up. Amen, church? Amen. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for this story just tucked in here at the end or near the end of the Gospel of John about Thomas. God, I relate to Thomas more than I'd like to. God, I'd like to just be this person that just easily believes and is faithful and just even you would use me all of a sudden to proclaim the resurrection as one of the first people to proclaim it. But God, I think too often I'm too pragmatic I'm too practical. I'm too doubting. And so, God, for any of us in this room that, that have that sort of heart, I would ask that you would increase in us a heart of trust. Could, would you make it so we would reach out and grab your hand and trust you more? Would we see that the sort of belief that you're inviting us into is not just figuring things out, not just into agreeing with certain ideas about you, but it is a relationship of trust and entrusting ourselves to you. 
God, right now, I imagine there's at least one or two people in here who are going, I still can't figure it out. I still can't figure out what it means to trust. I still have these doubts. God, Holy Spirit, would you do a work in their heart right now? Would you grab hold of it? Would you warm their heart? Would you help them to see you with eyes like Thomas saw you with? God, give us that ability. Have mercy on us. We can't do this on our own. Lord, we love you and we need you. And we're super thankful for you. Amen.